Yes. So I was thinking about repeating failures is never fun. Unless, of course, you're the people watching them on the big screen. Then it's fun. But when you're going through it, man, it stinks, doesn't it? How many of you just hate experiencing failure and then experiencing the same failure over again? It's terrible, right? We all hate that. And so we're in the middle of this series now called Doomed to Repeat because we're trying to look at Scripture and find out how in the world do we keep from repeating the same dumb thing over and over again, right? It's, it's tough. It's tough. How many of you have somebody that you know and you love in your life and you've watched them over and over again do the same thing and they're perplexed. They're like, I don't know why this keeps happening. And you're like, I do, just ask me, right? How many of you know somebody like that that you've watched and it's, okay, it's okay because they're probably not here. Well, if they are, it's okay anyway, right? But here's the, here's the thing. It's easy to kind of get into these patterns of doing the same thing and experiencing the same results and wishing that things were different. But what if we had a strategy? What if we had a biblical strategy for how to actually stop that cycle from being our norm? Wouldn't that be great? So that's why we're here today. So if you've got your Bible, turn in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8. I encourage you to take notes, go through this. This is a... This is one of those deals where we are actually working backwards through this story. So it's fitting that we watched the videos in, uh, in reverse because we are doing this story in reverse. And, um, and one of the things that I think is important as we go through this, it kind of illuminates the goal, right? The goal is the promised land. The goal is security. The goal is peace. The goal is to be able to live in the place that God's called you to. But in order to do that, you've got to move past the junk so that you can live in the promise, okay? So that's kind of what we're looking at. So as we look here, Deuteronomy chapter 8, We'll start with verse 1. It says, be careful to obey all the commands I am giving you today. All right, let's say that again. Be careful to obey all the commands I am giving you today. Then you will live and multiply and you will enter and occupy the land the Lord swore to give to your ancestors. So this is kind of a a replay of what we learned last week. This is kind of the whole theme last week, right? Obedience is critical. Obedience is critical. Obedience doesn't determine heaven and hell. Obedience determines your life, right? We talked about the fact that if if people would follow God's rules on finances, they would find themselves financially blessed. We talked about the fact that if 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 we followed God's rules on sexuality, STDs would be gone in a generation or so, right? We talked, by the way, Baltimore was just named the number one city in the United States for sexually transmitted diseases. This is one of those times you don't want to yell, we're number one, right? But it does illustrate why we're here. We have the solution to the problem that plagues the city. And it's not mysterious. It's not crazy. It's not difficult. Last week we were reading in in Deuteronomy how, how God says, this isn't too difficult for you. 
It's not so far that you have to cross the ocean to gather the information and bring it back and use it. It's not on the other side of heaven so that somebody has to go get it and bring it back. It's right here. And so it's not, it's not complicated, but it's, it's veiled. And our job is to share this message with the people of Baltimore so that they can be free from the bondage of the lies of the enemy. Amen? And we're seeing it happen. Man, I got to pray with so many awesome people last week that have been struggling and wrestling and God's giving them new layers and new levels of freedom. And it's so cool. It's cool to see people come to Christ. It's cool to see people come back to Christ. That's why we're here. It's the whole point. And so that's what we talked about last week. And so Moses is kind of prefacing what he's going to talk about in the future. And so um, we, we skip down now to verse two. It says, Remember how the Lord your God led you through the wilderness for these 40 years, humbling you and testing you to prove your character and to find out whether or not you would obey his commands. So what is the point of the wilderness? It says right here, it says, it's to humble us, right? And to make us hungry. How many of you know that when you're hungry, it's a good time to test you. When I'm hungry, about, I can probably eat, go without eating most of the day. When I hit about three or four o'clock in the afternoon, some switch flips inside of me and I get hangry, right? How many of you guys experience hanger on a regular basis, okay? It's a real thing, right? And so, so when you are hungry, it's a good opportunity to be humbled. I think that's one of the reasons why we're encouraged in Scripture to fast because it makes us more thoughtful. It makes us more acutely aware. It causes us to, to think about things in a different way than when we're full and when we're satisfied. And so God leads the people of Israel through the desert wilderness and he's doing it to humble them and to make them hungry. And what does he do though in the midst of their hunger? It says, yes, he humbled you by letting you go hungry and then feeding you with manna. You guys know manna means, what is it? They didn't know what it was. The Bible says in this passage, it, it was a food previously unknown to you, right? So they called it, what is it? They came out of their tents one morning, opened up the door. They're slipping and sliding on manna on the ground. And they're like, what is it? And for the next 40 years, they found out what it was. Right? Because that's all they ate for 40 years. That will make you humble. How many, of you, how many of you have more than one type of cereal in your pantry? Raise your hand. Okay? Most people, if you've got kids, you need about 723 different varieties of cereal because they'll eat two bowls of Fruit Loops and they're ready to move on to the next thing. And then a month later, you go through the store and they'll say, why don't we ever get Fruit Loops? You mean the kind that's in the pantry? Those kinds of, right? So, so imagine 40 years of just manna. They had boiled manna and fried manna and manicotti and... And Manowich, you know, I don't know. <laughs> what, are, what are you going to do? I, I feel like Bubba Gump up here, you know. We got bold mana and shrimp mana, right? So, so it's, it's one of those deals. 
that they just got so much manna. But what was the point? The point was, I want you to be humble. I want you to be dependent. And then Paul talks in Philippians chapter 4 about why this is so critically important. And he illustrates something. I won't make you turn there, but I want to read. It says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. See, humility is not thinking less of yourself. And now some people get off track because they think that you got to think that you're uh, a jerk and you're horrible and you're not smart and you're, uh, you're ugly and that makes you humble. That doesn't make you humble, okay? Thinking less of yourself doesn't make you humble, but thinking of yourself less, that's what makes you humble. See, if you're only thinking about yourself and how the world is used to your advantage and how every relationship you have is about you, matter of fact, we see it a lot. And how many of you have ever had somebody that you're connected with, because you would never do this, but somebody that you're connected with might do this, where they, you take a group picture, right? And in the group picture, you show it and they're like, that's terrible. That picture is so bad. Look at my smile in that. Who's the, who's the first person that you look at when you look at a group photo. You're not looking at everybody else's photo to find out how good they look. You're looking at yourself to find out how good you look. And if you look good and everybody else looks bad, it's a great photo, right? But if you look bad, this is terrible. Don't put that on Facebook. Don't put that on Instagram. That is a terrible picture, right? So, so humility, though, says, oh, man, look, every, look at the smile on this one. Look, look at Mario smiling. He looks so good in this picture. Look, look over here at the Nathalia. She looks so nice in this picture. Look at how her hair is just so Man, I wish I'd get my hair to do that, right? That's, that's humility, right? But, but so this is what Paul is trying to tell us. He says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or something to be taken hold of or something to be possessed. He had the right to do it, right? Because he was God, but he chose not to grab a hold of that. He chose to, he chose to cling to his identity as a human while he walked the earth so that he could identify with you and me and so that he could humble himself. He could have walked around and been puffed up. He could have walked around and held his godness over us, but he didn't. He be, took the very nature of a servant, Paul says. It says that he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So here's, here's the cool promise though. As we link ourselves to Christ, as we link ourselves to him in the way that he does things, his power flows through us and we're able to live our lives as Christ did when he walked the earth, are you going to be perfect? No, but that's not even the point. It's, are we seeing the life of Christ poured out of us into others? That's the point, right? You're seeing people around you change because the love of Christ in you is changing you and you can't help but change the people around you because that's how the power of God works, right? What happened every time in the Old and New Testament when people found themselves in the presence of God? They changed. What happened to Moses? Moses goes up on the mountain, right? Moses is a pretty good guy by all accounts, doing things well. 
He shows up on the mountain with God, and when he comes down after being in the presence of God, what's happening? He's glowing. He's glowing. The presence of God changed him. And he had to wear a veil over his face because when he walked around, it freaked people out. They're like, guys, shh, glow Moses is here. We just run, you know? I don't know how people respond, but it had to be weird. Like if I walked up on stage and I was like glowing, like besides the top of my head, I mean, glowing, you'd be like, whoa, what happened? This, what, pastor, this is just crazy, right? What happens to Isaiah when he, when he finds himself in, in the throne room of God? He's in the presence of God and he says, I'm, I'm unclean. I'm not worthy to be in your presence. And then the angel of God comes and he takes this coal and he touches Isaiah's lips. And, and he says, this coal has cleansed your lips. And now, you know, you're worthy. Now you can be found in the presence of God. So what we see is the holiness of God transferred to humanity. Most of the time, what we see, like all of the laws throughout scripture, Scripture are built on this fact that if you touch something dead, death transfers to you. If you touch something unclean, unclean transfers to you. But here's the reality of the new covenant and the presence of God. Now holiness transfers to you. Now the presence of God on you changes you. Okay? That's the beauty of the presence of God in your life. And so as we move forward, as you get this, this is so, so important. Um, I, I wanted to to talk just for a second that the the struggle that we find ourselves in, um, the reason that God allows us to struggle, I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday that's going through some incredible struggle, and he's like, I just, I, I don't understand pain in life. I don't understand why we go through pain, right? But But actually, God's explaining the process of pain and what it does, right? It's to make us hungry and humble. How many of you guys have have, um, have heard of the, the pro basketball player Kyrie Irving, right? Played for the Cleveland Cavaliers. I think he plays for the, the Brooklyn Nets now, doesn't he? Um, but he's got these shoes, and it says hungry and humble. Now, I don't know if he was in Deuteronomy or not when he came up with that, but he didn't invent it. Okay, it was invented like 6,000 years ago, but the point stays the same. You got to be hungry and you got to be humble if you're going to accomplish what God has set you to accomplish, right? Has nothing to do with Kyrie Irving. I didn't get it from Kyrie Irving. It comes from God's word, but it's a truth that we need. I was watching a video. He actually has this painted on the wall in his dining room in his house. And I was like, well, that's kind of cool. If you, I don't know if he's a Christian, I don't know if he's a believer, but, but here's what I know. If he can get this in the right context, man, it'll change everything for him. Not his basketball game, but it will change his life. And if we could get this, it would be, it would be critical. What happens to us is that when we get under pressure, it reveals what's in us, right? Uh, sometimes I watch these videos um, on YouTube where they put things in a, a giant press um, that pushes down with like 20 tons of pressure, right? And they say, well, what happens to a watermelon when you push it under 20, right? What happens to a bowling ball when you put under, and so it's all these, and I don't know how I got looped into watching these things, but I'm just like, fascinated. I watch it. I'm like, it's going to blow up. It's going to blow up. It's going to blow up. It blew up. That was awesome. Right? How many of you guys just like watching things blow up? Be honest. Okay. Both of us. That's good. Okay. There are more of you. Good, good, good. So I was thinking about as, as the, you know, I have, I have kids and I won't rat 
um, the middle child out at all. But, but when he, we, we use sponges when we clean the kitchen, right? How many of you are sponge users in the kitchen? Okay, so some people are grossed out by sponges. Some people are not. We, we believe in replacing them very, very frequently and washing them in dishwasher, by the way. Dishwasher, sponge, good call. So, but what happens a lot of times is we, we find ourselves filled up, right, with whatever is going on. We find ourselves in, in a place where um, we're affected by, by what we're putting in ourselves, right? No matter who you are, no matter where you're from, you're always putting things in, right? You're soaking things up. You're soaking up your atmosphere. You're soaking up your environment. And then when you get under pressure, what's inside comes out, right? And so, so it's the same way when you're going through struggles and, and you get under pressure and you start to get squeezed, what's in you will come out of you, right? When the guy cuts you off at the four-way stop when it was clearly your turn, what's in you will come out of you, Right? That's why, honestly, that's one of the reasons why I don't watch movies that have a lot of cursing in them. Because I know me, right? And what I hear tends to come out, right? Now, I might be the only person here that has that happen, but when I start getting stuff in my head, when something happens, what's inside comes out. Right. It, matter of fact, the kids laugh at me when I, when I get hurt um, because I'll say random things when I get hurt. And um, like like if I hit my finger with a hammer or something, you'll hear me say something like "son of a monkey," and and they think it's hilarious when I when I say things like that. Um, I'll say I'll say people's name in vain, but not the Lord's. Right? Like the other day. <laughs> It was, I, I stubbed my toe and I went, Meghan Markle. I'm like, why did I say Meghan Markle? Like, she's been on the news, I guess. I don't know. And she was just, I'm like, where did that even come from? You know, subconsciously, something is just, it's like, it's going in. And when you, like, when you're under pressure, it comes out. So here's the point. Like, saturate yourself with good things so that when bad things happen, good things still come out. Right? Here's, here's where people get hung up. Can I watch an R-rated movie and still be a Christian? Well, of course. That's like a dumb question. That's not even the question to ask. Right? The question is, is that what you want to come out of you? Would you rather sit in a jacuzzi that's chlorinated or would you rather sit in a cesspool? Me personally, I'd go with the jacuzzi. Some people love the cesspool, and their lives are toxic because what they allow to saturate them. And so, as it's like, if you don't, this is not legalism, okay? This is what do you want your life to be? Whatever you want to come out of here is what you put into it. Why do I only listen to worship music? Because I want worship to come out of me. It's not because I'm legalistic. 
And then I think if I listen to some secular music that I'm going to go to hell. That's not the point. The point is, I want when struggle comes to have worship come out of me. I want when depression starts to settle in my mind that I start singing a hallelujah. That's what I want to happen. I want to saturate myself with the word. There are books. I love to read novels. I read a lot. I read a lot of secular works. I read a lot of Christian works. I read a lot of leadership stuff. I read a lot of history. There's some stuff that I read that I have to stop reading because they want to choose to put language in it. And I'm like, I don't want that in my spirit. There are some things that I read that are that are novel. I, I tried to read this um, book that was kind of a novelized uh, historical fiction of World War II, but it started to get racy, and it started to get language in it. It didn't start off that way. Probably the first 30 chapters was fine, and then I got into it a little bit, and it was like, man, this is garbage, and it made me so mad, but now because I'm like, I've got some time invested in this thing, and I wanted to finish it, but I got to stop it because I don't want that in here because I don't want it to move from here to here. And when I get stressed or when I get under pressure, I don't want it to move from here out to here. And that's what deserts are for. That's what wilderness is for. It's to squeeze us so that we can find out what's really on the inside because a lot of times we can walk around with a false sense of security that we're good. And we'll even tell people, I'm good. How you doing? I'm good. Uh, wrong answer. And when that pressure starts to come, you realize how not good you are, right? And so, so that's kind of a part of this thing. So, <clears throat> so here's, here's a neat thing. Um, in, in verse 3, it says, Yes, he humbled you by letting you go hungry and then feeding you with manna, a food previously unknown to you and your ancestors. He did it to teach you that people do not live by bread alone. Rather, we live by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Does that sound familiar? Where we hear that? Jesus, right? He's in the desert in Matthew chapter 4. He's being tempted. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit pushed Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. So, so God pushes Jesus into a time of temptation and testing. God pushed him into the desert. He didn't go because he wanted to go. He didn't go because he wanted a vacation. He went because he was pushed by God into it. Isn't that very similar to what we're reading here? In Deuteronomy, didn't God lead the people into the desert? Why? To humble them and test them and make them hungry. What do we see in Jesus? He was pushed into the desert to humble him, to test him, and make him hungry. He fasted for 40 days. Bible says at the end of the 40 days, he was hungry. To which many of you are like, you didn't even need to tell us that. We knew, we knew, we knew right? And so, so that's part. Now, the Israelites, how long were they in the desert? 40 years. How long was Jesus in the desert? 40 days. Do you see these parallels? This is really, really cool. So as you, as you look at this, you see the most powerful parallel that I think that we see here too is that the one who appears at the end of the desert to lead them into the promised land is a man named Joshua. His name in Greek is Yeshua. Jesus' name in Greek is Yeshua. 
What does that mean? It means God saves. So at the edge of the promised land, after the 40, after the wilderness, after the hunger, after the humility, God saves you and moves you into the promise. That's cool. That's really, really neat. And these are the things that we miss when we miss the word. Like God is building this narrative. And I love the Bible project, honestly, because did you see how they took that idea of generosity and they took it all the way from the Garden of Eden all the way through? They said, let's look at generosity through the narrative of Scripture. In the context of the whole, what does this look like? And I love to look at the word that way and just see the narrative of scripture come alive in these themes and how they connect old and new Testament and how Jesus lives out all of these different parts of the promise. It's so cool. So powerful. And so now let's skip on down to Deuteronomy chapter eight, verse five. It says, think about it. Just as a parent disciplines a child, the Lord, your God disciplines you for your own good. How many of you remember a time either when you were growing up and one of your parents disciplined you or when you were disciplining your own child where you said, this is for your own good? Right? And if you were a kid and you were ever disciplined and you had a parent say, this is for your own good, you thought, you sadistic, crazy You don't say that, okay? I'm just, don't say that. But that's what you think, right? Who who does this? You are crazy. I remember when I was growing up, my mom, she believed in discipline, right? Now, discipline, let me just say this. Discipline is not just punishment, okay? Parents understand when you're disciplining your kids, what you're doing is you're correcting their weaknesses, and you're empowering their strengths. There's two sides of discipline, right? So when you see your kids doing something wrong, the idea is to correct, not to punish. Punishment is not the goal. Correction is the goal. If, matter of fact, if you can correct without punishment, that's preferable, right? If you think your kid can get it without having to impose punishment, take that approach first. If it becomes a pattern of behavior, then you're going to have to throw some discipline or some punishment in with the discipline to make the discipline stick. Okay? If if you are if you see something that your kids doing right now, here's the problem that a lot of us have as parents and I'm guilty of this sometimes. If my kids are doing the right thing, sometimes I don't notice the right thing. Because I'm like you're supposed to be doing it. Of course. What are you looking for a button? Let's get, you know, right, that's sometimes my, my mindset, and so I'm just kind of looking for them to do that. But as often as I can, I want to cr- catch them doing what's right and reinforce, man, I noticed the way that you did that. That was awesome. Thank you. That's what maturity looks like, right? You're, you're, you're bolstering the positive behaviors because if you're just whacking the negative behaviors, you're not going to see discipline motivate your kids the way that it should, right? You also have to have that, that, that push of like, hey, I'm going to reinforce these good things that you're doing too. This is super important. 
All right. So my mom, she she believed in discipline. She would um, she would punish us with discipline. I don't know if she completely got that you didn't have to punish with discipline. You know, she I don't think she ever really got that because I remember and she probably if mom, if you're watching this online, I just didn't see it. Okay, maybe it's because I was young. All right. But but my mother and I've told this story before, but I haven't told it recently. But my mother was so good at punishment. She had this this black leather belt that hung on the back of her bathroom door all the time. And it had a crease right in the middle because it had one purpose in life. And that was to warm up my backside. Right. And, and my mom, I'm grateful now I wasn't then, but I'm grateful now that my mom whooped my behind, right? Because I needed it. And so, um, through her spanking me, is actually how rap music was developed. You guys think I'm messing, but it's true. And who would have known that early 80s in the Midwest, a little white woman invented rap music. But what would happen is my brother and I would be fighting, and I know your kids don't fight, but my brother and I did. We fought all the time, and my mom would would come in, and she'd say, don't do that again. And if mom said, don't do that again, like that, it was bad, right? And usually all she needed to do was go. And we knew what she meant. How many of your parents had that look where you, you didn't have to say anything? I know what you're saying, right? And so, and, and, and my dad actually invented Snapchat too, because when he would want us to do something, he'd just go, Right? And he had that thunder snap, and you're like, whoa. And so that was Snapchat before it was cool, right? My dad did it. And then my mom, though, she would come in and she would look at us and she would go, don't do that again. And then she'd walk out, and then she had this like sixth sense. She knew when we were doing junk that we weren't supposed to do, even if she wasn't watching, she knew, right? And then she'd come back in the room and she would fly in like a ninja with that, with that belt and she, and she would grab a hold of an arm, right? And she didn't come back talking. She came back swinging, right? And she'd come in and you're trying to run away. And as you're doing it, she, you just, she's kind of running in a circle with you, right? And the whole time she's got you running in a circle, she's and the whole time she's, if I told you once, I told you a thousand times, if you do that again, I'm going to whoop your behind. So come on here. You know that I'm right. I'm going to whoop your behind for the rest of the night. And that, that's how rap music was invented. So it's kind of cool. So you can credit my mom. And she was gangster before gangster was gangster. You know what I'm saying? She was serious. And so... The scripture says here, though, that that God disciplines us, right, for our good. And we need to understand that when God allows us to go through these struggles and tests, it's not because he doesn't love us. As a matter of fact, it's the opposite. It's because he does love us. Now, we don't necessarily understand and we don't we can't wrap our mind around the types of pain that we endure sometimes. And as we sit and ask the questions, why God, why God, why God? The answers generally don't come, do they? And if they do, it usually leads to more questions, doesn't it? When, when you ask a question and you get an answer to the why question from God, you're usually like, 
okay, but, but why? Right? Like he answered that question, but now I got five more questions. And so as you're going through life, don't ask why about the struggle you're in because it's really not to your benefit. What good does it do to know why when we already essentially know why, right? Because God is allowing the situation and the circumstance to humble you and to make you hungry, right? That's what it's for. And so as you're going through it, don't ask why. Say, God, what? What are you trying to teach me? How, God, how can I walk through this with integrity and strength? God, what do I need to do in order to be the man that you've designed me to be as I walk through this trial? That's what I need to know. It's so cool how God will work this stuff out. And now, one of the things that I know is that the difficult seasons in your life are God patiently waiting for your strength to fail so that he can move into your brokenness and demonstrate his strength, right? Because as long as you're content to just be strong and do, I got this, right? The moment people say, I got this, I usually think, you don't got this, right? Because, like, we don't. We're just not that strong. But can I tell you, there's tremendous peace in knowing that I'm just not that strong. And God will allow us to go through broken moments so that we empty ourselves of ourselves. And then it leaves this spot where he can move in and be strong in you. I'm going to read just a little bit further. Start with verse 6. It says, So obey the commands of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land of flowing streams and pools of water with fountains and springs that gush out in the valleys and hills. It is a land of wheat and barley, of grapevines, fig trees and pomegranates, of olive oil and honey. It's a land where food is plentiful and nothing is lacking. It is a land where iron is common as stone. And copper is abundant in the hills. When you've eaten your fill, be sure to praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. But that is the time to be careful. Beware that in your plenty, you do not forget the Lord your God and disobey his commands, regulations, and decrees that I'm giving you today. For when you have become full and prosperous and have built fine homes to live in, and when your flocks and herds have become very large and your silver and gold have multiplied along with everything else, be careful. Do not become proud at that time and forget the Lord your God who rescued you from slavery in the land of Egypt. Do not forget that he led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its poisonous snakes and scorpions where it was so hot and dry. He gave you water from the rock. He fed you with manna in the wilderness a food unknown to your ancestors. He did this to humble you and test you, to humble you and test you for your own good. He did all of this so you would never say to yourself, I have achieved this wealth with my own strength and energy. Boy, isn't that the temptation, especially in America? The American dream is to do it yourself, 
self-reliance, self-empowerment, self-aggrandizement, self-centeredness. It's all about me. Verse 18 says, remember the Lord your God. He is the one who gives you power to be successful in order to fulfill the covenant he confirmed to your ancestors with an oath. Here's what I want you to think about for just a second. <clears throat> there is, there's a passage of scripture that you guys are very familiar with. It's Philippians 4.13. It says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, right? That's a good one. That's a good one to remember. That would be a good one for an NBA player to put on their sneakers, wouldn't it? That was a little pop culture humor because there's a player that, okay, never mind. So verse 11, though, says, not that I was ever in need, for I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or an empty stomach, with plenty or with little, for I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So when Paul is talking and he says, hey, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, he's not talking about your ability to dunk. Right? He's not talking about your ability to build your business into this mega corporation. He's not talking about your ability to do anything other than to be content. Paul says, I've learned how to be faithful. I've learned how to be content when my stomach's empty or when my stomach's full. I've learned when my pocketbook is full and when my pocketbook is empty. I've learned what it means to be content and not grumble and not be frustrated no matter what lot I have in life because I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. That's good context, isn't it? See, a text without a context is only a pretext. So that's why it's important to read it fully. So what happens a lot of times and what we see happen to the children of Israel because Moses actually calls the shot because that's exactly what happens to them when they cross into the land of promise, right? Is that they get in there and they get puffed up and they say, look at me, look what we got. Look what we have. We did so much. We conquered this land. We've got the promised land. Look how amazing we are. We're even God's special people. I like being the special people, Right? And so what they did was, in the desert, they were emptied, right? When they got to the promised land, God had moved in and allowed his strength. But then, all of a sudden, they started pushing God out, and they didn't realize that they were pushing God out. And they were puffing themselves up, right? I'm going to blow this up. So they blow themselves up. But what is this glove capable of when it's just full of hot air? Nothing. And so what does God have to do with the people of Israel? He has to move them into a situation where the pressures deflate them and they're empty again. But the beauty of being empty is that God can move in. Now, what can you do with this? Right? 
What can you do with God's hand moving through you? What can you do if God takes the shape and God begins to do things and you allow God to move you and do things? Think about all that you can accomplish that way. And so as we, as we look at this, we, we know that we need God to empty us. We know that we need God to work humility in us. This is the critical factor. This is the most important thing that we can do is walk humbly before our God. Man, who are we to walk arrogantly and proudfully and pridefully before God? God is so big. And and that we're so small isn't even the issue. Again, we don't have to make ourselves small, right? We just need to acknowledge the greatness of God and that he is all sufficient. Even in the midst of my insufficiencies, God's sufficient. I know I'm not going to be a perfect dad for my kids, but you know what? They already have a perfect father. And I'm trying to hang out with him as much as I can. Because my hope is that he'll rub off on me. And I know that if I spend time in the presence of my heavenly father and theirs, I'll be shaped into his image and he'll be able to use me to impact my kids. Right? You see how this works, guys? I don't want to over preach, but I want to. I want you to walk away with this truth because it's, it's so critical. And if you go back to verse 1 of chapter 8, it says, Be careful to obey all the commands I'm giving you today. Then you, will love, uh, then you will live and multiply, and you will enter and occupy the land the Lord swore to give your ancestors. God has a purpose for you. He's got a plan for you. And it's contingent on your desire to obey to humble yourselves and just find your way repeatedly back into the presence of God. That's what it's about. That's what it's about. I'm going to invite Levi back up here because I want us to end with a time of just commitment. Um, I think that, that one of the things that we have to see is that whether you're going through struggles or triumphs, whether you're going through bad times or good times, God can be found in the middle of it. He can be found in the middle of it. God's not hiding out concerned and afraid because you're going through a tough time. The wilderness doesn't intimidate God because God provides in the wilderness. Amen? God knows how to get you to where he wants you to be. And believe me, His plan for you is perfect. It's beyond your wildest imaginations. Would you stand with me? We're going to sing No Longer Slaves. And as we do, I I just want us to be reminded of this journey that the people of Israel are taking out of bondage and into the promised land. And your story is the same. The fact that Jesus 
<clears throat> makes this come alive as he's tempted, right? As he's pushed into the desert, as he's tempted for 40 days, as he says, man will not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. What he's doing is helping you understand that the promise that was for the Israelites in Deuteronomy chapter 8 is a promise that's for you, right? But he's the fulfillment of that promise. And so he's the one that works it out on your behalf. And your job is humble yourself, empty yourself of yourself, allow him to move in and take up ownership of who you are. And you'll see the chains falling off. You'll see the struggles take on a different meaning. And instead of just representing pain, your struggles will signify your freedom. See, if the Israelites could have just understood as they were walking through the desert that the desert wasn't a new bondage, it was a freedom. But see, they got their eyes on their struggle so much that they actually started longing for their bondage. Oh, that we could go back to Egypt. We had meat every day. We had leeks to eat. I don't even know why that was a thing. They got meat and leeks, but they missed the fact that they had chains and whips and bondage and work and death and no value. Freedom doesn't come without pain. And any church that you go to or any preacher that you listen to that promises you that the Christian walk is one of painlessness, happiness, and constant peace, they're lying to you. There's desert, there's pain, but there's freedom. And there's a promise. There's a promise. And you get to live in it. Amen? If you want to make a special commitment this morning, I'm going to invite you to walk down to the front and just say, Lord, I'm committed to this process. I, I want my life to be shaped into the image of your son. I don't, I don't want to be all puffed up and proud and arrogant and think that I can do it on my own, Lord. I want to be empty of me so that I can allow you to fill me. If that's you this morning, I want you to come. I want to pray over you. And we're going to worship together this morning.